Thanks for checking out this sermon from Redemption Church in Seattle, Washington, where we are enjoying Jesus, loving people, and making disciples. If you'd like to learn more about redemption, you can go to redemptionchurchseattle.com. Or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday here in Green Lake. Well, we're going to begin our Advent uh, series today. And so, as we mentioned a moment ago in our liturgy, the word Advent is an old Latin word that means coming or arrival of the Lord Jesus. And so, for the last 2,000 years, we have been celebrating the very fact that God has given us God to the world. That is, as Paul describes it in the book of Galatians, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son to be born of the woman, the Virgin Mary. And so, and for those of you that aren't Christians or maybe like haven't heard of that, you know, like virgin birth. Yes, we believe in a virgin birth. We also believe in the resurrection of the dead and some other things that you might hear along the way today that might make you scratch your head and go, that's curious. I'm, I'm interested in that. Why do you believe that? Well, We'll tell you some of why we believe that. So as mentioned earlier, we're going to be looking specifically at the subject of hope. And we look at the fact that God keeps his promises. Um, and, and I know that it's easy to come to church and go, right, God keeps his promises. Smile, sing, nod along and go, right, okay, God gives us hope. But inwardly, be rolling your eyes going, uh, I don't feel like I have a whole lot of hope. Uh, when you look around the city of Seattle, in particular, hope is not one of the words that actually like comes to mind often. It's, um, well, we're busy, uh, and it's expensive, and... Um, yeah, that's it. That's it. Oh, and go Hawks, right? So like that's, that's kind of the things that come to our minds. Hope doesn't really come to our minds. And it's easy to feel quite hopeless, quite frustrated, like your Christian faith is more wishful thinking than anything else. Maybe you're even thinking this morning, heck, it's a miracle that I got out of bed this morning to come to church because I struggle with my belief. Anybody there today? Just kind of like, I, 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 you, it's okay, you can be honest, you're in church. So, like, yeah, I struggle with my, with my doubts. And if that's you, uh, I've prayed for you a lot this week in particular. Um, I can tell you that my hope is for you would, that would be that God would revive your hope today in the gospel. Um, I can also tell you that as a man on the very same faith journey with you, uh, that my hope and my faith and my trust in God is not always at 100%. As a pastor in the church, um, I don't have flawless faith. Uh, I don't have it all together. And I wrestle with the very same things that you do. That is, I read the very same news feed you read every day and conclude, this world is hopeless. Um, in fact, throughout my faith, the last 21 years, um, I've doubted God more than I would really care to admit. Not, not just like, is God just? Or does God love us? I've spent long seasons of life honestly reflecting and pondering the fact, does God even exist? Does he even exist? Anybody do that? Like, did the rest of you people do that? Like, 
yeah, does he really? This is, this, this is not like easy, trite, pop evangelical believism. But to actually look at this world and go, does he exist? Like, I, I don't have a flawless faith. And I don't know how to put a bow on every crisis or situation. And it's because I watch the same news feeds you do. I go to the same hospitals you do. I have those same broken relationships that you do. And um, to be quite honest, to be a pastor at Advent, I feel like a complete fool. So I've, I've wrestled with this stuff. And it's hard to look at the news and go, but God exists, and he's good, and by his goodness, he's going to make this place right again. So Merry Christmas. <laughs> um, I know you all can identify with that because we're all human beings and we're all in this thing together. Uh, and if you haven't had these thoughts and if you don't struggle with having faith in the virgin birth um, and the giving of God to the world, if you don't actually struggle with that, then it'd be easy just to argue that you're probably not paying any attention. This is, this is hard. This is not easy by any stretch. And so as the children of God, we ask these kinds of questions, but we're not always like gloomy, but we're not blind either. We're those people who aren't satisfied with trite cliches, coffee cup kind of Bible verses taken out of context that you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. That means you can run a lap around Green Lake today. Like, that's not what that verse is about. Those kinds of things don't do anything for us. And the reason why is because God has been too good to us. God has been too near to us. God has healed us too many times to smear that kind of nonsense over real suffering. What Christians want in our hopeless moments is not just answers to why we feel hopeless. We want the presence of our Father. Does that make sense? That what we really want is not just answers. We want the presence of God with us. And that's what Advent is all about. Emmanuel, God with us. And that might make some of you kind of, kind of uncomfortable going, well, I, I really didn't want to know that one of my pastors struggles so much with his faith. I thought you guys are supposed to be kind of like a cut above the rest of humanity, you know, and right? Get a red phone on your desk to call God anytime your life falls apart or one of ours. You're supposed to get a red phone. At least that's kind of how I thought about pastors growing up is that they're supposed to just be able to ring God up and have an answer in about five minutes as to why life is falling apart. Uh, but after 21 years of knowing Jesus uh, and going to theology school for almost all of those years, here's one thing uh, <laughs> I, I didn't get at any of my graduations, a red phone. You know what I didn't get was a red phone. I didn't get a force field around me that exempts me from suffering. You know what I got at my graduations? Paper. 
just a, just a piece of paper that says Alex spent a lot of money and read a lot of books and went to class and wrote essays. I got a piece of paper. I didn't get a red phone. I got a, I got a piece of paper, and I walked back to my car all four times with paper to go in a frame with no red phone to call God when my faith falls apart and have a quick answer. Hope speaks to real life, and the hope of the gospel speaks to your real life in the real here and the real now. So there's really no shortcuts to the throne of God. All of us, like I said a moment ago, are in this thing together. And so as Christians, we confess that Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God. And in doing that, he gave us hope. Not blind, naive optimism, but an actual confidence in the fact that God is who he says he is, and God will do all that he promises to do. So our faith is bookended with two moments in time that make our lives worth living. That gives purpose to all that we are as human beings. And those two moments in particular are what we observe here at Advent. The coming of the Lord Jesus. And at Easter, in which he resurrected from the dead. Easter happened because Advent is true. And so because of these two realities, at the core of who we are as the children of God, our stories are now redefined and reconstructed and retold with the thread of hope running right through the middle. So this is why the Bible is long on hope, because God keeps his promises. So let's jump into Isaiah chapter 11. We're going to do the first 10 verses, and then if you're taking notes and jump over later at the very end of this sermon, we're going to look for just a moment at uh, Romans chapter 15 and what Paul has to say there. So Isaiah, briefly, here's just two things about Isaiah. Isaiah's prophetic ministry took place about 700 years before the birth of Jesus in the year 722 B.C., I know you all got up and read this in your study Bibles this morning. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel had been taken captive. And Babylon was soon to now, by the Assyrians, and Babylon is now about to be in power. Isaiah comes on the scene as a prophet of God. He is appointed by God to be a prophet to the nation of Israel in the year that King Uzziah died. It's in the famous passage where Isaiah is in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6. So Isaiah goes onto the scene, and two big themes running throughout Isaiah's prophecy is the theme of salvation and hope. And at the time when Isaiah comes on the scene and gives this prophetic word, things are bleak. People are being carried off into captivity. And they're wondering, are we ever going to get back to the promised land and actually live under a theocracy the way we always wanted to? Isaiah comes on the scene and delivers a strong message of hope. Verse 1, chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Okay, so in the Old Testament, 
Who, who's Jesse? Jesse is the father of who we later find out, King David, right? So you can read about these stories in First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel and First and Second Chronicles. You can read about the lineage of David and the stories of David. David was the young shepherd boy, the smallest one, right? Pushed way out to just 10 sheep while the other brothers were gonna go do big things. They're the sons of Jesse. Of course, David is the one who is anointed to be one day the future king of Israel, the greatest king that Israel would ever know, right? David was anointed by God. David's the one who would, you know, close the mouths of lions and break the neck of a bear and take down Goliath. David was unbelievable. And to this day, he's still remembered as the greatest king Israel has ever known. So there's some of David. And yet when we read in the lineage of Jesus and multiple places throughout the New Testament, we find out that Jesus is the truer David, the greater David, the king that would come on the scene and not just establish the kingdom of Israel, but would actually expand beyond Israel to Gentiles, people like you and me, people like you and me that didn't grow up in Israel, born under the covenants of God, people that are way out here, born in Woodstock, Georgia, or even a little further left, all the way up in Seattle, way out here, way later, not under the promises, not under the covenants, not all this stuff. Jesus was gonna come on the scene and bring in people like you and me and people from all over the globe. It was gonna go beyond a nationalistic kind of religion. It was gonna go global. And what's, isn't that fantastic Like that God is that good that people in China right now are underground worshiping Jesus like us right now and they're literally our brothers and sisters and they've been doing that for thousands of years and people in Sri Lanka and people in Pakistan and people in Australia and in New Zealand and all around the globe. But yeah, that's what the gospel and who the gospel is for. Okay, so Jesus will be sent, but he's, Isaiah uses this strange metaphor of a stump from the stump of Jesse. Like what, what an unimpressive metaphor for the coming of the Messiah. I mean, man, of all things, a stump looking fairly useless, especially when you compare it to chapter 10 that he had just been talking about these grand cedars of Lebanon, these glorious trees of another place. And now he turns the metaphor and goes, and from a stump, that which is cut down, that which appears useless, there's gonna be a, a sprig. Why use a stump as a metaphor? Because that's how God always works. So like Abraham, he goes and finds a peasant way out in the outskirts of a pagan country called Ur. Moses, God reveals himself not in Pharaoh's palace, but out in the countryside in a burning bush. God reveals himself to David and to Solomon and so on. And so of course, when he starts talking about a stump, right, well, who, ultimately, who, where's he gonna start? He's gonna start with two poor peasant teenagers, Joseph and Mary. So he picks a stump, and this is how God always does it. He starts with water, turns it into wine. He starts with a little boy's lunch, he turns it into feeding 5,000 families. He starts with a cross, he ends with a resurrection. Right? This is how God consistently does it. That's why Paul says God chooses the weak things, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. 
which is such a humbling thing to read every single time. If you're a Christian, it's because God looked at you and was like, you're weak enough. <laughs> Thank you. It's like so humbling, but that's the, that's the Christian experience. And for those that don't want to follow Jesus, it's because they just can't accept the weakness of their own lives. So what's, so the sprig that's growing off the stump, what's he going to be like? Well, here's what we find out. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding. So first we see that this Messiah figure is going to be different from everybody else that's come on the scene with the resting, the remaining upon spirit will be upon this particular individual. Okay, Uh, In the Old Testament, they understood that the spirit would come and go, that he would be upon a person's life for a moment of time to empower some kind of leadership moment or a moment of, of going into war or a moment of worship or something, but the Spirit didn't actually remain upon someone. And this particular person that Isaiah is talking about is going, he's going to actually remain upon the one we're prophesying about. If you want to read one of the Gospels in particular, Luke's Gospel highlights the person and the work of the Holy Spirit above the others, more than the others. So, and you see how Jesus lives his life by the Spirit. So first, the Spirit will rest upon him and would would enable him to lead with wisdom, which is more than intelligence. This is about being able to see a situation for what it really is and then use incredible judgment and then bring about the right or righteous way of life. That's what wisdom is. The Spirit will remain upon him and he will execute wisdom. This is in contrast to Ahaz and all the other prophets and, or all the other kings that had come before with all their moral failures, spiritual failures, political failures, family crisis, all that stuff that you read about all the, all the kings that just botch it in the Old Testament. You're constantly, if you read your Old Testament closely, you're constantly wondering, like, is anybody going to come up and get it right? And the answer is yes, this little sprig. So, and the spirit of counsel and might. This word, the, the word counsel and might means that he's going to be able to put together plans and not only put together and devise plans, but actually has the power, the might to accomplish what he wants to do. So the king will be a warrior who is the prince of peace and he will establish peace. And he'll do it with his might. Do you know that God is a mighty God? That God didn't send you a weak Jesus, but a mighty Jesus, a Jesus that's worthy of your worship, a Jesus that is not some soft, weakling pushover, but he's mighty. And then it says the spirit of knowledge. So the spirit that remains upon him will be the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. So this, this coming king is gonna be filled with knowledge and what it is to be in a constant relationship with God. He will not be just the one who knows uh, the way to live is in the fear of the Lord, that the, the right way to live is to reverence God and just know that intellectually, but he's actually going to, to do that perfectly. 
So he's going to honor God in all that he says and thinks and does. Every page of his life, every moment of his life, he's going to live perfectly in the fear of the Lord. So he's going to be perfect. Verse three, this, is, this, this might be my favorite part of what I learned this week, I don't know. As a pastor, you read all kinds of things all week, like, oh, that's awesome, oh, that's awesome, that's awesome. You know, like, this might have been my favorite part, though. So, verse three, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So delight, the word delight right here is the, the Hebrew word, it's really fun to say, ruach. Go ahead, say it with me, one, two, three. Ruach, right, okay, so in the Old Testament, you, if, for those of you that have been around church, you know that that's the word for, for spirit or breath, like that, but it's also a word that is used for, uh, to smell a fragrance, to savor something. It's what you did on Thanksgiving when you walked into the kitchen or when you walked by a candle or a Christmas tree at this time of year, and you go, You know those smells, that you, and they're the smells that you've smelled your whole life. They, they take you somewhere else and go, oh, that's the truth, yes, right. When Isaiah talked about the coming of Jesus, he said that's what Jesus is gonna feel like when he thinks about honoring God. Wow, what a savior. Not somebody that's going to attempt to be good from time to time, but the very essence of who he is will be a, the fear of the Lord, justice, righteousness, kindness, compassion, grace, forgiveness, reconciliation, all the things that we find in the gospel, that's going to smell fantastic to Jesus, and anything less is a stench. That's so cool. I, this is why we love Jesus. All right, so that's how the Messiah would think. And you're going, okay, so um, I thought this sermon's supposed to be about hope. Why is all this hopeful? Well, here's why. God didn't send you a second-rate Messiah. He didn't send you a downgrade. He didn't send you like, well, I can't find anybody else. Like, think of it. God sent not an angel though he has millions of angels at his disposal to do whatever he wants at any moment, God doesn't send you an angel. God didn't send you a second-rate Messiah. God sent you his very son. God sent you his son. Well, what's he gonna do when he gets here? Well, he shall not judge, this is what we read. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. So he's not gonna just look on the outward appearance and go, well, you don't look very impressive. Or, uh, I, or, or he's not gonna just hear just things in his ears and go, well, and be manipulated. No, 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 what's he gonna do? But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity the meek of the earth. Here it is again and again. You're like, man, the poor and the marginalized come up all the time in the Bible. God is constantly identifying with the poor. The orphans, the widows, the overlooked. The Messiah would not treat people the way society treats the least of these. He is not going to forget them. He will get down and wash their feet. And he's not just going to meet their spiritual needs. He's going to be concerned about their actual physical needs. 
And then we have this really harsh word for those who would oppress the poor. Look at the next verse. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips kill the wicked. So God takes the oppression of the poor extremely seriously. Like, man, this is Advent, and there's a verse on judgment. Jeez. Isn't that kind of out of place? No, that's the point of Advent. He came to save you from judgment. So as your friend, one of the pastors here, just a Christian, it wouldn't be right to tell you this amazing message of hope and this amazing message of the gospel and not set it against the backdrop of the judgment that all of us fall under because all of us have fallen into this category called the wicked. Everyone but Jesus. Everyone except that one sprig falls under the judgment of God. Paul would tell us later that it was that we're the enemies of God. Through our own sin, we became God's enemies. Not morally neutral, enemies. And it's in the gift of Jesus that we would not just become friends of God, but we would become his own children in whom he delights. So righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So in trying to, in trying to figure out how do, you, how do you on this metaphor of clothing right here, here's, here's what one theologian, uh, how he, he describes it, Gary Smith, says this. The aim is not to present a negative view of uncontrolled slaughter of wicked people but to emphasize that everything will be guided by principles of justice, upright behavior, and consistent faithfulness. The righteous character of the Messiah will enable him to do the right thing in all circumstances, while his faithfulness will ensure his consistent dependability. Listen to this last line, I love this. He will display, the character, he will display perfectly the character of God because the divine spirit's gift will hang like clothes or a belt around him. That when you look at Jesus and you observe his life, the righteousness of God will be so obvious on him, it's like the jacket hanging off my shoulders today. You see Jesus and you just go, you're exactly like in everything that you do. And the New Testament is so crystal clear on this. He's so crystal clear that all the writers are going, he is not less than God. He is God. He is not less. He is. That's why we sing to him and worship him as God. Okay. And then it gets just really great. It's theological and it's the word zoological <laughs> vision of heaven. Here we are. This is amazing. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. The little child shall lead them. The cow shall bear, the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So what's the hope of the coming kingdom? Well, Isaiah starts to paint a picture here that literally everything is the way it should be. 
that even cobras don't pose a threat to infants. Then in the coming kingdom of God, literally everything is made right. Every creature will be at peace. I love that. That as you look at each creature, if you go to the zoo as often as we do, there are certain reasons why the lions are behind caged. <laughs> there's, a, there's a thing, they'll, they'll eat you. <laughs> and there's coming a day in which all animal life will be at peace with human beings. What an amazing vision to go, not only am I reconciled to God, not only am I reconciled to brothers and sisters and people that I was at once enemy, there's nothing in creation that poses a threat to us. That's the idea. We won't need doctors. We won't need police officers. We won't need firefighters. We won't need paramedics. We won't need the EMTs. We won't put locks on the doors in heaven. There's none of that. There's no threat. That's what Isaiah is trying to communicate here is a perfect vision of peace that's coming because of this Messiah. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all the peoples, of him the nation shall inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Okay, hang with me. This is, this is so great. Um, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal, meaning the word signal literally means like the word signal there is flag or a banner. It's something you raise up to be seen everywhere. In that day, he'll be standing. He won't fall. He won't die. He won't be defeated. He won't be buried like every other king that's come along and gone, And right? No, he's going to be standing. When it's all said and done, Jesus is still standing. He's going to be that one. He's that one. Undefeated, unrivaled, unmatched. That's our Jesus. In that day, he'll be standing and he'll be a signal for all the nations to see him. That is, every last people group, there will be people ransomed to God from every last people group. If you want to read about this, read Revelation 5 and 6 and 7 and read the very end of the book of Revelation where we see people from every nation and tribe and tongue gathered around the throne of Jesus. That's, there's, that's, there's thousands of languages around the throne of God. That's what he's going to do. He's not just going to come for just a few people. He's going to come for anybody who would be willing to put their faith in him. That is so great. If we were in a Pentecostal church, we would say amen or something, but that's okay. It's okay. All right, so, but that's, that's what Jesus is going to accomplish. So let's jump to Romans 15 very quickly, and I'll uh, let you, I'll let you in on something that how Paul comments on this verse. All right, so Romans 15. Here's what we see. Verse eight, for I tell you, this is Paul's commentary on Isaiah. Listen, for I tell you that Christ, Christ, Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show, the, uh, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Okay, here we go. Christ. Who is that sprig? Jesus. Christ, and what did he become? He became a servant. This is, you can read about it over in uh, Philippians 2, where he humbled himself, that he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but became a servant, humbled himself, right? Lived among us. And when Jesus humbled himself, he did not just humble himself to leave 
the throne room of God and become a king on the earth. What did he become? He was born in a manger, lives as a peasant among the poor. And then when Jesus dies, Paul highlights the fact that when he died, he says, even death, even the death of a cross, that Jesus dies and goes so low, he goes to dying a criminal's death, a death that would have been reserved only for runaway slaves in the Roman Empire. It was the most shameful death. Just when you think Jesus can't stoop any lower, he goes that far, all the way to the very bottom. And then the Apostles' Creed tells us that then he descends into hell. I mean, we're going, Jesus went as far as it possibly took to get to you and to me. He became that kind of a servant. Wow. To show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the, to the patriarchs. To show what? Why did he do that? It's that? To show you that God keeps his promises. That God promised Adam and Eve that one day he would crush the serpent's head. That God promised Abraham that his descendants would outnumber the stars in the sky and the sand and the sea. That God promised us one day that we're gonna get a king way greater than David God promised, and he came through in meeting our greatest need, reconciliation with him. Why is that? Here's how Paul sums it up. And if you mark your Bibles, mark all these doxological, all these praise words. Words like glorify, sing, praise, rejoice, extol. They're all packed in here. Why does God do all that stuff? Because all good theology dead ends in doxology. Every time. If it doesn't end up in the worship of God, it was poor theology according to how Scripture works. So watch. In order, why do you do this? Here, in order that the Gentiles, people like you and me, might glorify God for his mercy as it's written. Therefore, I will sing praise. I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. If you wonder, why are Christians singing people? Why do we sing every single time we get together? Why all these instruments? Why is this important? Why? Because that's the right response when something amazing happens. That's what worship does. Like for those fortunate that get to go to the Hawks game today, you're gonna sing, right? After we just, right? We're, we sing when something wonderful has happened. As Christians, this is why we lift our hands. As Christians, this is why we beat the drums and play the guitars and play the pianos and play the. Say, this is why we do all that we do as Christians. It is a response. It's doxological that God saw us down here as his enemies, as the ones who had ran away, as the ones who broke the commandments. We saw, God saw us in that estate, and God, what did he do? Sent us not an angel and did not send us just another law to try harder. What did God do? God sent us his son. And it dead ends in doxology, a whole lot of thank you, Jesus, a whole lot of gratitude, a whole lot of worship. That's what happens when we understand the gospel and the good news that God saw us as we are and loved us where we were. 
and did not demand that we clean our act up and did not demand that we try a little harder and did not demand that we walk on water ourselves or do some miracle to prove ourselves worthy of his love. Rather, God saw us as his enemies, putting his son to death, and Jesus remained on a cross for us. That's fantastic. That's why Christians go to the praise of his glorious grace. Look, at verse 10, again it said, rejoice Gentiles, not Jews, you and me right here. Rejoice Gentiles, can you feel that? When he has that moment where he sees all that God has done in the fullness of time he gave us Jesus, rejoice. Again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule who? Us the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles have hope. Verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. You see how this works? You see how, may the God of hope fill you and it, look, look at it, it says here, in believing. This is not, not it's not a, a mental ascending. It's not just understanding a few facts. It's not just memorizing the Apostles' Creed. It's literally in believing. To believe, like in believing, that Greek is so important right there. To believe into, it means you were outside of and then you believed into. It was a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of will, a change of orientation, a change of desire, a change of affection, a change of allegiance, a change of lordship, a death to self, and a living to God. That's what Paul is getting at. Believing in him that you may abound in hope. So saints, our hope is in the only unshakable, immovable, unchanging person in the universe. We hope in the God of hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of Jesus and the gospel. Thank you that you hear our prayers. Thank you that you are present with us, among us, within us. We ask that you would speak powerfully to us in the gospel today. Would you apply the message of scripture to us in a way that orients our minds and our hearts toward you? Would you help us to be the hopeful people of Seattle? Those who look at a hopeless city and, and deliver the good news of the gospel and not just in word, but in our deeds and how we physically live our lives here in this city with what we do with our time, what we do with our money and our resources. Would you help us to live as those kinds of hopeful people whose hope is in heaven and the God of hope and not just in our circumstances? Father, thank you for sending us Jesus. Would you create in us hearts of worship that follow hard after you? We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.